You're seeing, by the way, why this book was written in a nonlinear style. <laughs> As it's true for most children, when I was young, I heard the world speak. Stars sang, stones had preferences, trees had bad days. Toads held lively discussions and crowed over a good day's catch. Like static on a radio, schooling and other forms of socialization began to interfere with my perception of the animate world. And for a number of years, I almost believed that only humans spoke. The gap between what I experienced and what I almost believed confused me deeply. It wasn't until later that I began to understand the personal, political, social, ecological, and economic implications of living in a silenced world. This silencing is central to the workings of our culture. The staunch refusal to hear the voices of those we exploit is crucial to our domination of religion, science, philosophy, politics, education, psychology, medicine, literature, linguistics, art, have all been pressed into service as tools to rationalize the silencing and degradation of women, children, other races, other cultures, the natural world and its members, our emotions, our consciences, our experiences, and our cultural and personal histories. My own introduction to this silencing, and this is similarly true for a great percentage of children as well within many families, came at the hands and genitals of my father, who beat my mother, my brothers, and my sisters, and who raped my mother, my sister, and me. I can only speculate that because I was the youngest, my father somehow thought it best that instead of beating me, he would force me to watch and listen. I remember scenes, vaguely, it's from a movie, a dream long ago. Alarms flailing, my father chasing my brother Rob around and around the house. I remember my mother pulling my father into their bedroom to absorb blows that may have otherwise landed on our children. We sat stone-faced in the kitchen, captive audience to stifle drums and escape through walls that were just too thin. The vagueness with which I recollect these formative images is really the point here, because the worst thing my father did went beyond the hitting and the raping to the denial that any of it ever happened. Not only bodies were broken, but broken also was the bedrock connection between memory and experience, between psyche and reality. His denial made sense, not only because an admission of violence would have harmed his image as a socially respected, wealthy, and deeply religious attorney, but more simply because the man who would beat his children couldn't speak about it honestly and continue to do it. The same is true, of course, for any culture that would kill the salmon. If we could talk about it, we wouldn't do it. We became a family of amnesiacs. There's no place in the mind that sufficiently contained these experiences, and as there was effectively no way out, it would have served no purpose for us to consciously remember the atrocities. So we learned, day after day, that we couldn't trust our perceptions, that we were better off not listening to our emotions. Daily we forgot. If a memory pushed its way to the surface, we forgot again. There'd be a beating, followed by a brief contrition, my father asking, why did you make me do it? And then, nothing, save the inconvenient evidence. A broken door, urine-soaked underwear, a wooden room divider my brother repeatedly tore from the wall trying to pick up speed around the corner. Once these were fixed, there was nothing left to remember, so we forgot our pattern continued. This willingness to forget is the essence of silencing. When I realized that, I began to pay more attention to the how and the why of forgetting, and thus began a journey back to remembering. So what else do we forget? Do we think about nuclear devastation or the wisdom of producing tons of plutonium, which is lethal even in microscopic doses for well over 250,000 years? So let me take a guess. How many lethal doses? A lethal dose is how much it takes to kill one person. How many lethal doses of plutonium-239 has our culture fabricated? Somebody take a guess. Ten million. Ten million? Billion. 10 billion? 
Come on, get serious. What? Come on. 13 quadrillion. It ends up as like 200 million lethal doses or something like that for every person on the planet. Oh, I got in an argument last spring with a uh, nuclear physicist about this because he said, that's not true. It's only dangerous for 25,000 years. <laughs> and he's wrong, but that's, that's okay. Does global warming invade our dreams? Oh, God, I, this was in the Chronicle last spring. This just killed me. Okay, this is three days in a row, front page of the paper. First day is 1999 was the hottest summer on record all over the United States. The subhead was hot summer adds fuel to global warming debate. Okay, next day was Tiger Woods did really well in the U.S. Open, and the headline was Tiger Woods silences all critics. The next day was the jury is in, America loves reality-based TV. <laughs> and so the point is, there was this entirely different standard of proof that was held up. And it's hot all over the country. That means there's more debate about global warming. But Tiger Woods does well one day, so, so he silences all critics. <laughs> it's, it's crazy. You know, I mean, if it weren't so serious, it would all just be a big joke. You know, we all spend all this time trying to figure out whether the president got a blowjob. And what, what the hell does this have to do with corporate control of everything on the planet? That's why we don't talk about it. That's why we talk about the other. God, it's so weird, too. Because if you hear about the O.J. Simpson thing long enough, you start worrying yourself whether Cato Kalin's ever going to get a date again. <laughs> it's like, it's sort of, it sort of invades. You know, it's like a little virus that gets inside and replicates or something. I think Cato Kalin's going to be okay. <laughs> Does global warming invade our dreams? In our most serious moments, do we consider that industrial civilization has initiated the greatest mass extinction in the history of the planet? How often do we consider that our culture commits genocide against every indigenous culture it encounters? As one consumes the products manufactured by our culture, is she or he concerned about the atrocities that make them possible? We don't stop these atrocities because we don't talk about them. We don't talk about them because we don't think about them. We don't think about them because they're too horrific to comprehend. As trauma expert Judith Herman writes, the ordinary response to atrocities is to banish them from consciousness. Certain violations of the social compact are too terrible to utter aloud. This is the meaning of the word unspeakable. As the ecological fabric of the natural world unravels around us, perhaps it's time that we begin to speak of the unspeakable and to listen to that which we've deemed unhearable. A grenade rolls across the floor. Look. It won't go away.